against the dark arts. How many know we have a real enemy? And uh, his whole mission, steal, kill, and destroy. And we're going to be continuing in that series today with a message. I want to kind of back it up to where I gave my life to Jesus. I was 16 years of age. And uh, I was really the first in my immediate family to give my life to Jesus. I'd been around religious things. My parents had enough kind of wherewithal to send my brother and I to Christian schooling. But we were like what they call CEO Christians, right? Christmas and Easter only. And that's not a good year. We're very spiritual if we went twice a year. Um, and so really, I mean, Jesus was, if anything, maybe a historical figure. I knew some things, actually sad, but true story. I ran the school Christian group, but was not in fact a Christian. That's a whole message for another day. They call that hypocrisy, just to be clear. But anyway, uh, like, <laughs> but I guess I had the raw materials of leadership, and it wasn't until my school chaplain said, if you don't actually start you know, following Jesus, radical idea, and find a church, you can't run the school Christian group anymore, which, by the way, was called Crusaders. I don't know who thought that was like a high point of Christianity that we should celebrate the Crusades, but anyway. Um, anyway, so I find Jesus, right? And... Uh, I'm 16, my parents freak out, they actually, they, you know, this was before Google, they went to the Encyclopedia Britannica, because I grew up in Australia, and they looked up the name of my church, because they were convinced I joined a cult, I was so passionate, I was so all in, they're like, something has to be wrong, and uh, I actually went to church on purpose, by choice, they were freaked out, and, uh, and I got this verse that became like a life verse, a promise for me, I'm 16 and then 17. In fact, I started full-time unpaid ministry. <clears throat> they left out that detail, no pay, but full-time ministry the day after I graduated from high school. And this was my life verse. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, says this, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but here's the catch, set an example for the believers. Set an example for the believers in speech. That's often the easy part, right? learning the language, saying all the right things, but what about in your conduct, the way you live your life? What about in love, not just for God, but for people who are messy? Can I get an amen? <laughs> in your faith and also in your purity. That was a big verse for me. And in many ways, my, my, my starting place in ministry was to see myself as a young Timothy. But you know, think about the impact that Paul had on Timothy. Paul says one of the most audacious, I think one of the scariest things in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says this, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. If you sit with that for a minute, that is a scary thing to say. He's saying, to paraphrase, follow me because I'm following Jesus. That's a lot of responsibility. But here's this young Timothy, much of our series is looking at First and Second Timothy with this example that he's following in the person of Paul. I, you know, Paul has been a big figure in my life. I don't know, my parents were more prophetic than they knew, naming me Paul, because in many ways the calling that God was birthing in me actually became church planting and writing and preaching and discipling. And so Paul has been a hero to me. But you know, we're in this series identifying the ways in which the enemy is coming against you and I and the call that's on our lives, the potential that is on you. You know what I'm seeing in the world right now? 
What I'm seeing the enemy bring is discouragement across the body of Christ. He's coming to discourage the people of God. He's coming to discourage the leaders in the, in the house of God. But there's a solution. We're going to talk about combating those dark arts. What's the antidote? What's the answer? A beautiful, elegant solution that God has equipped you and I with. And what's powerful about it is it's not about a personality type. It's not about leadership, a microphone, a platform. What I want to share with you today is a ministry. Every single person, man, woman, child, whatever generation, whatever background, every one of us can walk in this thing that is a gift to the body of Christ. I want to share with you the story of somebody in Scripture who, interestingly enough, in 30 years now of following Jesus, I never heard one message on this guy. But I want to show to you today the impact that he had. You ever been reading the Bible and then something just jumps off the pages at you? It's like the book's alive, right? You're just reading, maybe just minding your own business, thinking about coffee, and then suddenly, wham! <laughs> so where did that come from? I had that in this verse. And I want to show it to you because I believe in this as a key for you. I really do. To prevail and to overcome in the season we find ourselves in. It's in Acts chapter 4. Verses 36 to 37, it says this, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the first mention of a man in the Bible that we would see all through the book of Acts and many of the letters, including the letters to Timothy that Paul would write, a man called Barnabas. And listen, I believe there's a lot that you and I can learn for right here, right now, in the place that we're living in, about what it means to live a life where we are being a Barnabas. If you want a title for the message today, I want to encourage you today, as a church, as an individual, of what it means to be a Barnabas to people around you. The verse got me interested because there's a few things that are unusual about that passage. The first is Joseph's a good name, so why does he get a, a new name? Plenty of great Josephs in the Bible, right? That's a good Hebrew name. That was the first thing that got me curious. But the second thing was, why does the Bible tell us what his new name means? I was thinking about that because it actually says, you know, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. Why? Why? Why do they call him Barnabas? And in parentheses it says, which means son of encouragement. I started thinking about that. It's like if you know anything about the Hebrew culture, all of these names have beautiful meanings. All of these rich Hebrew names are powerful, but the Bible would be a lot longer if every one of them got explained every time, right? A lot of parentheses. So why does the writer feel we, we can't miss this one? Why is it so important that we know what Barnabas was known for? Because actually the nickname stuck. The, the Bible never calls him Joseph again. From that day forward, he will always be Barnabas, son of encouragement at a time when there's turmoil in the church. People are being persecuted, jailed, even killed for their faith. He made his mark. He came against the dark arts of the day by determining to be an encourager. That's a, that's a ministry every one of us are being called into. And honestly, I sat with this question. It's a challenging one. I started to wonder, would people around me give me that nickname? 
I wonder if people around you would say, man, when I get around her, when I get around him, they are such an encourager. I wonder if they would, because that's a calling that I want to lean into, because encouragement, listen, it's a powerful force. I bet you could think of some people that encouraged you when you needed it most. Might have been in the mountaintop or in the valley or at a key decision in your life. Somebody stepped in with encouragement, with life for you at the moment when you, I bet if we pass the mic around, we can name person after person. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for such and such. They marked you. They changed the course of your destiny for good, for generations perhaps, for eternity. Amen? I had one of those people in my life when I first got saved at 16 and 17. I started volunteering at a community youth center run by a lady who in those days, her maiden name, her Greek maiden name was Christine Karyophilus. And people called her Alphabet because they couldn't spell it. Uh, but these days, she's a very well-known preacher called Christine Kane, if you know anything about fighting human trafficking. And I mean, she's around the world. But in those days, she was just my boss. I was learning. I was, you talk about a piece of work. I was a piece of work. Uh, <laughs> talking about somebody taking a chance on somebody. And I remember she pulled me aside one day as I was running an after-school program uh, at a community youth center. And, uh, and she said, you know, Paul, she watched me encouraging some people. And she said to me, you know, sheep go where they're fed. And I nodded, but on the inside, I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so deep, so wise. And she could tell, like, it wasn't computing, you know, because I, I have no poker face at all. Whatever I'm feeling is right here. And, uh, and so thankfully, she followed up with an explanation that I still remember. Bear in mind, this is 30 years later. I remember the very next words out of her mouth is she said, if you will be an encourager, you'll never have any shortage of people to lead. Boy, has that proven to be true. I think when I talk about having a ministry of encouragement, some of us could think, eh, basic. No, no, no. You can change the world. Change the course of destinies, families, marriages, nations with the power of encouragement. And let's face it, there's already enough discouragement in the world. Can I get an amen? Like, I don't know about you, but I can spend five minutes on social media or my newsfeed. I need a nap. A sedative, something, <laughs> therapy. Anyone else is like, there's so much negativity out there. But it's like, heaven help us though. That's, okay, the world's gonna be the world, but what about the church? Heaven help us. If the church becomes the place that's negative, that's critical, that's cynical and jaded, heaven help us. That doesn't mean sometimes we don't need a challenge. Sometimes we need to speak the truth in love. Amen to all of that. But this ought to be the place, just like the person of Jesus, that lifts people up. The Barnabas effect is powerful. And I want to show you in Scripture how I, how I believe that Barnabas is the most important person outside the person of Jesus in the life of a young man called Saul. If you don't know the backstory in the Scripture, Saul is the guy that eventually becomes Paul, the Apostle Paul. But he didn't have such a good start. It's not like if you're writing a bio of somebody you'd want on your church staff, probably doesn't start with killing Christians, for instance. Uh, but that's Saul's story. Like the first time he gets mentioned in the Bible, he's holding the coats of those who are martyring Stephen. And the Bible makes sure we know he's approving, approving of his martyrdom, his murder. Well, then he just, like it's like he goes on a rampage. Now he's got a fire in his belly. He's persecuting Christians everywhere. His reputation, a terrible reputation, spreads far and wide. Fear 
gets into the hearts of the followers of the way, as they were known in those days. So apparently he runs out of people to persecute in Jerusalem, so he has to go to Damascus, gets letters from the authority to go arrest and persecute and maybe kill some more followers of the way. And on the way there, has this encounter with God. Famous story, we don't need to look at it for sake of time today, but a blinding light, a voice from heaven, he struck blind. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he realizes to his shame that in his zeal, he actually had been persecuting God, not serving God. And he's radically saved. Awesome story. But here's what happens next. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. So it says that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pause there for a second. This is crazy. I don't know if you ever just read the Bible like a textbook. Stop that. Ah. Uh, Put yourself in the story. Ask questions because this is straight crazy. Remember why he was going to Damascus to drag the followers before the authorities to potentially lose their lives. And then it says after his conversion, at once he began to preach in the synagogues. Can anybody think that it's like a hairpin turn at 200 miles an hour for everybody in Damascus? They, words on the street, it's like, Saul's coming. And they're like, oh, I don't know. But but they're going to go to church. They've got, you know, the well Damascus. That's their campus. They're on their way there on Sunday. They're like, Saul's coming, Saul's coming. We should go to church, though. We love our church. It's awesome. Devon's leaving. Um, and so they, um, so they go to church on Sunday, and then it's like Pastor Jason gets up, and he's like, we've got a guest. You might have heard of him because uh, you're terrified of him. Saul's preaching today. And he comes up, and everybody's like, there's no, there's no applause. Everybody's like, oof. <laughs> like, did he even do the grow class? Did anybody run a... A background check. Like, I really feel, really feel like we could do better. Um, we're, we're scraping the barrel. <laughs> so look what the Bible says next. It says, all who heard him were astonished. <laughs> I love the Bible. It like, says the most crazy stuff. All who heard him were astonished, do you think? And asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests. And yet, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving <laughs> that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> this next verse, it gets a little sideways. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. <laughs> He's like three sentences into ministry and people are trying to kill him. Ministry is great, isn't it? It's awesome. It's the best. Um, but Saul learned of their plans, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. But when he came to Jerusalem, okay, time out. Jerusalem's like headquarters. This is where it all began. You know, they're trying to kill him out there on the field, but we'll get him back to HQ. It'll be fine. No, not at all fine. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Not believing he was really a disciple. So pause for a second, because we got the benefit of 2020 hindsight. We're like, come on, guys, this is Paul. Not yet. Nope. This is a guy that was recently killing Christians. Uh, he's still Saul. He's still a long shot, actually, frankly, at this point. And they had good reason to be afraid, or at least a little skeptical, because it would be kind of the best double cross ever if Paul's like, oh, I'm a Christian, come out of hiding, trick ya, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, double cross and then trap all the remaining Christians, right? So 
you know, you can forgive them for being a little skeptical. It's like, I don't know, I don't know. Like, can we just like let him sit for a minute, see what happens here? But since they were not believing he was really a disciple, but listen, I have these next two words circled in my Bible. But Barnabas. This, in my opinion, might be the hinge on which the whole New Testament takes a different turn. This might be the moment that the birth of the early church heads on a whole new course. But Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas gets him an audience with the apostles and everything changes. So he stayed with them, moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Two paragraphs, two assassination attempts. (laughs) And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to his hometown of Tarsus. And the church enjoyed a time of peace and increased in numbers. Think about the fruit of Barnabas. What if there hadn't been those two words? What if there wasn't the but Barnabas moment in Saul's life, given his track record, given all the craziness, given people trying to kill him? But Barnabas steps in at that critical moment I'll vouch for him. Steps into that critical moment. I'll get in before the apostles. Back. Be quiet, Saul. I'll share your story. <laughs> he believed in Saul when others didn't. And I wonder if you and I can see the work of God in a person's life. See, this series, we're talking a lot about Timothy. But I wonder Tim, where Timothy would be if there wasn't a Paul. But then one step further, I wonder where Paul would be if there wasn't a Barnabas. I believe God is calling you and I to be a Barnabas to people in the world around us, to be an encourager, to be a difference maker, to see people, listen, this is important, to see people according to their God-given potential, and not just according to their background, their struggles, or their worst day. We're called to lift people higher. So let me ask you a couple of questions to make this real. Number one, are you willing to risk your reputation on someone else's? Quiet, isn't it? <laughs> that's, what, that's what Barnabas did. He's not a nobody. No, no, at his say-so, the, uh, the apostles let Saul right into the room. He has access. He has influence. He's not a nobody, no. And he risks that on the unproven Saul. I'll testify how he got saved and how he preached. And on his say-so, Saul gets a second chance. I wonder if you're willing to do that. A second question Are you willing to handle the ups and downs of believing in people? Are you willing to handle the ups and downs of believing in people? That's what this stuff is. It's not nice and neat and buttoned down and predictable. No, it's messy and it's volatile. I imagine a lot of times in those early months and years, people would come to Barnabas, pull him aside. So how's Saul going? And the testimony would be, he's alive? Like that would be a good week, right? Nobody killed him this week. That's positive, right? It's wild. That's what it's like. If we're going to believe in people, there's going to be ups and downs, good days, bad days. Are we willing to handle that? Stand with people through the messes and the the bad choices and all the things? Because frankly, listen, if we have any humility and self-awareness at all, we ought to remember that was me too. 
Can we pay it forward? The third question I want to ask you is, are we secure enough to empower others? Are we secure enough to empower others? You know, there's, there's an interesting thing I noticed in the Bible. So it says, you know, early on, it's always Barnabas and Saul. They went on trips. They planted churches. They did all these things. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. His name changes now. It's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And there were no fanfare, no reason given, no announcement. The Bible reverses their names, and it never goes back. It's always Paul and Barnabas from there on out. Now, maybe I'm making too much of this, but I think there's something there. So I think Paul becomes the bigger name. Paul's the one. Paul's planning the churches. Paul's writing the letters. Everybody's hearing Paul speak. I think everybody's following Paul on Instagram, right? He's the bigger name. But it seems to me Barnabas is just fine. He's not threatened. Like, wait, I used, always used to be, I was the headline. He's like the supporting guy. What do you mean? He wouldn't be who he is without me. No. Barnabas is secure. Barnabas knows who he is. As a youth pastor, I used to preach things like this. And Pastor Jason will tell you. It's like, you know, we want the next generation to stand on our shoulders. And I think I meant it, but then they do. And then what happens is like, what do you, what, who do you think you are? You know, I remember when, you know, no, right? <laughs> All your insecurity comes to the surface. Like, you wouldn't be who you are without me, you know? <laughs> That's not the spirit of a Barnabas at all. Seems Barnabas is just fine with the spotlight shifting. All for the kingdom, right? Now, let me add a little bit of nuance to our encouragement definition, because I have one concern, and that is if I task you all with going out and encouraging somebody today, 99% of us are going to assume that means I need to say something. And I'll allow, that is definitely a part of being an encourager, but let's have a bigger definition. I believe when it comes to being a Barnabas, both words and works matter. Bear in mind, Barnabas didn't get the name by being an encouraging guy in words. It actually says he sold the field, brought the proceeds, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they called him son of encouragement. It was actually his generosity that earned him the name. But I'll go so far as to say, I bet him just being there on those mission trips with the apostle Paul, just his presence was an encouragement. It's, it's everything. It's our time. It's our talent. It's our treasure. You can be an encouragement with a text message, with a note, with a coffee, with a check-in, more than just words. And here's the thing, in case you think I'm making too much of the whole Paul and Barnabas thing, let me show you, encouragement creates room for second chances. This is big. Because you know, there comes a time when they're supposed to go back and check on all the churches that they planted, right? But Barnabas wants to take his cousin, John Mark, they often just called him Mark for short, who had gone with them on the first trip. But what you don't know until this part later is that actually when John Mark went them on, with them on the first missions trip, he quit. But Paul's so mad about it that when they go to do a second trip, Paul won't take him. It says this in Acts 15, 37 to 40, it says, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And you have to do a little digging to follow their story, because the, the book of Acts continues to follow Paul as the main character, but you can start to piece together what happens. It's not the end of the story for Barnabas, and it's not the end of the story for Mark either. In fact, Paul, in some of his letters that he writes back, including 2 Timothy, talks about Mark 
but in complimentary way. Not a deserter anymore. In one letter to Philemon, he calls him my fellow worker in Christ. That's a step up. But second Timothy, he actually says, send Mark to me, for he is useful to me in my ministry. The one he wouldn't take on a missions trip a minute ago, but thank God there was a Barnabas. He's like, you know what, Paul, do your thing. You got Silas, I got Mark. There's room for second chances. There's room for comebacks, amen? That's what encouragement can do. You know, in the, the translation I was reading when this thing first struck me, it says, it says, can also be translated son of prophecy in the footnotes. I started to realize, it frustrated me at first as a preacher, because I was like, I want to talk about encouragement. What do you mean, can be son of prophecy? That was annoying. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Maybe they're like two edges of the one blade. Maybe, maybe every time I encourage, I prophesy. See, 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Man, what a thing to be a prophet of God-given potential in somebody's life with the simple strength of encouragement. Bob Buford, the author, said it this way. He said, my fruit grows on other people's trees. You might be sitting there thinking, that's all well and good, preacher, but man, I need someone to encourage me. And look, I don't mean to minimize whatever it is that you're going through right now, but let me just for a moment encourage you to say, hey, I often heard it said, be the change you want to see in the world. Jesus put it this way. It's about sowing and reaping. In fact, the Bible promises he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. What if we lived a lifestyle of encouragement that we could reap even ourselves in our moments of need and we all have them in the same way that we're sown? As the worship team come join me, I, um, my last Sunday in Australia before we moved to New York City to plant our church, a uh, younger guy came up to me, Kieran, and uh, he said, hey, before you leave to plant this church, I wanted to tell you something. He said, I still got your note up on my wall. And he smiled really big, but I had that terrified moment when I realized I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember the note. It's like, oh, I'm the worst person. Ah, this is obviously a big deal. And, um, and he sees my look of terror and puts, puts me at ease. And this is what he says. He says, yeah, you wouldn't remember. It was over 10 years ago. I was in high school, and you wrote me a note, and you said, I, I believe in the call of God in your life. I believe you're going to be a man of God, a man of integrity. He said, I went home from school. I pinned that note up on my cork board, and it's been there ever since. And here's the thing. Like, more than 10 years ago, he graduated high school, graduated college, became one of the most successful realtors in our area, got married, had three kids, still got that note up on the wall. I couldn't have possibly realized in the moment that it took that I didn't even remember all those years later that I took to be a Barnabas to him, that that would be in his life a Barnabas moment. See, I, I believe, and maybe you feel badly for me that I didn't remember. Honestly, I kind of love that. I think that's what it's like when you make a lifestyle instead of an event or a moment of being an encourager. When you make a lifestyle of being an encourager, man, it's just all the time, everywhere I can. In fact, the Bible says a farmer goes out to sow seed not knowing whether this one or that will prosper. I kind of love it that the moment for him that was such a big deal was just a simple act of obedience, a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And that's the point. You have those moments too. 
Because there's somebody today that needs a text from you. There's somebody today that needs a coffee with you or whatever. There's somebody that needs a reach out. I haven't seen you. How are you doing? How can I be praying for you? Whatever it is, you can be the difference in this world. Can I have every head bowed, every eye closed? My time's gone, but I want to pray for two groups of people. And the first group of people, you love Jesus. This is probably your home church and you planted. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your ministry today. There are some of you that are feeling challenged, encouraged by this message that the Holy Spirit is nudging you to be a Barnabas too. That there's someone, maybe more than one, in your world who right now needs you to bridge the gap. Someone I'll probably never meet this side of eternity, but you could be the difference.